Hi, everyone. It's Audrey, and this is the Meet Your Heroes podcast, the podcast where we help you get to know some of history's most notable people on a deeper, more salacious, and dare we say, more human level. We're doing things a bit differently this week. The truth is, we usually record each episode while our kid is away. But considering they haven't been out of our house in almost a month, that's getting harder and harder to do. Unfortunately, that means we haven't had the bandwidth to record and edit an episode that lives up to the world-class professional standards that you're used to coming from us. In all seriousness, though, we are working extra hard to have a number of episodes ready in the queue for many weeks to come. In the meantime, we are really grateful for your understanding, and we are super excited to bring you this encore mashup of two of our most controversial and favorite episodes. Now is the perfect time to re-listen to these classics or share this two-for-one episode with your friends and family who haven't subscribed yet. So without further ado, we give you part one and two of episode 15, Mother Teresa and Dr. Seuss. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes podcast, the podcast where every week we spend... 40, 45 minutes in our closet, shit-talking people from history. I'm Audrey. I'm Elliot. And uh, this week, Elliot's in charge of the research. He is sharing with me uh, the life and times of a hero from history. So, why don't you get us started? History's, uh, we're going pretty recent with this one. Okay. 20th century. Okay. Madonna. Well, bigger than Madonna. Lady Gaga. <laughs> Bigger than Lady Gaga. Beyonce. Dare I say... No, I won't actually say that. But what Never I... say <laughs> anyone is bigger than Beyonce. Here's Don't what I will say. dare. This person is objectively the single most admired human of the 20th century. Gallup, oh. Gallup poll mm. of Americans. This person is the single most admired person... In society, also happens to be a Nobel Prize winner. I never trust a Gallup poll. It sounds like a bunch of horses ask me some questions. All I'm saying is... <laughs> Nobel Prize, not Beyonce. All right, let's do this. Today, we get to meet Mother Teresa. Yikes. Personal, personal favorite... Got a lot to talk about. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That's big. Mother Teresa, assumed name, right? So I, I mean, yes, sure. Yes. I, I don't imagine she is born and name. her mother is like, <laughs> look at this little Mother Teresa. Yes. So, uh, 1910, Anya Goncha Uh Same root as Agnes. So we're, we're going to call her Agnes here. Got it. Agnes is born Northern Macedonia. Not even sure where that is on a map. Uh, if you go up from Greece, okay, right, you're traveling north before you get to Poland. Mm, then no Poland was north of Greece. <laughs> yeah, you are in northern Macedonia <laughs> at the time, Albania. Okay, uh, mm, but almost like that name better. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, Agnes is born in uh, Skopje, now the capital. Trust you. She, uh, her father dies when she's eight. Mm. Her mother is very religious. Mm-hmm. And uh, she grows up hearing stories about missionaries in India, mm. right? Uh, so by the time she's 12, 
she's convinced this is what she wants to do. Um, when I was 12, I wanted to marry a Backstreet Boy. <laughs> so maybe don't trust 12-year-olds. Well, <laughs> unlike your lack of commitment to your dreams. <laughs> so first of all, it was Lance from NSYNC, which really would not have worked out well for either of us. I mean, evidence points to no, <laughs> but dreams point to yes. Dreams point to yes. It's um, bleach. So Agnes here decides at 12... She, too, wants to be a missionary in India. Uh, 19, ships off to India. She's going to be a teacher at this uh, school that the nuns have in Calcutta. Um, And so from 19 to, like, her mid-30s, she's a teacher just hanging out in the school in Calcutta doing run-of-the-mill nun teaching stuff. Okay. She's riding a train one day. God tells her, go and... uh, go and, and work with the poor. This is what she's decided. She's mm-hmm. like, I gotta be I have to be in it now. Right? Okay. Um so she gets a couple months of medical training the next year. Oh uh, months well of medical training? We're, we like just, any good doctor. We've hit a theme. <laughs> uh there's no aspirations to be a doctor here. This is okay. a um this is a very rudimentary approach, which will be a consistent theme. Okay. Uh the Vatican signs off on this, right? Called the Missionaries of Charity. Uh, and unfortunately, this is Uh-oh. where our story is going to take a hard turn and never recover. Oh. Because Agnes here started off in a school. Instead of Mother Teresa, can we call her Mama Agnes? <laughs> I'm going to call her Agnes. <laughs> okay. But you are welcome to call, call her, her Mama, Mama Agnes. Agnes. <laughs> yes. Um, she decided that a school was not really in the suffering business enough. Right? She. And so she decides wow. to open her first hospice. Mm. Right? Ah. Uh, so on her 42nd birthday, she opens Mother Teresa's uh, Kalingit home, Kalingit's a city, home for the dying destitutes. Oh. Um, what a name. By choosing this name, I think it's a pretty strong message about who's welcome. One, you need to be destitute. Sure. Two, you need to be dying. Mm. Turns out everybody who comes in is destitute. Not everybody who comes in is dying when they come in. But when they come in, oh, turns out a lot of people who are not dying when they come in are going to be dying by the time they leave. Um, this is a free hospice for the poor. Now, the word hospice has connotations in the West right now. And you right? worked at a hospice. You... I volunteered at a hospice. Yeah, that was a turning point in your life, right? Yes, I've. So this is near and dear to my heart because I've worked in hospices, volunteered in hospices, not professionally, wor- volunteered. And a hospice now is a place where people with like six months or less to live can go and receive palliative care, which is sure. to say that is care that like helps them make peace with their death and also like physically comfortable yes. and like puts them like treats the symptoms even mm-hmm. if there's not hope for treating the underlying disease. Sure. Um, people who were brought here, right, were theoretically. So the first thing is that when uh, Agnes here opens up her home for the dying destitutes. Mm-mm. The goal is like, okay, you're in India, there are Muslims, there are Hindus, and there are Christians as well. Mm -hmm. And the advertising first off says, hey, no matter what you are, you're going to get whatever rituals are for your faith. So Muslims will read the Quran, Hindus get water from the Ganges, Catholics receive last rites, right? Sure. But from the very beginning, nobody knows, and, and the outside world doesn't discover until like 40 years later, this is actually a secret... Let's baptize everybody Catholic operation. So it turns out in their dying breaths, when people are like, you know, just about to pass in the throes of suffering, 
one of the nur- one of the nurses or one of the nuns will ask them like, "Hey, do you want a free ticket to paradise?" Oh, no. and as long as that person just like nods or winks or anything, they baptize that person Christian against their will oh. and don't tell them or their families if they have any family. So, so all of a sudden, right? The first mission here is to collect souls for Jesus, regardless of whoever you are. Now. Again, if you're not religious, might not make a big difference to you. If you're a religious Muslim or Hindu, you probably care about this and are not a big fan. And in fact, they know it's a bad idea, so they keep it secret from all of the Hindu authorities, right? They're not telling, they're not broadcasting this. It's not till the 90s where this finally comes out. But it doesn't stop them from starting wow. right there, right? What a violation. Yes. Um, yeah, she called it her special ticket to St. Peter uh, later down the line, uh, which everybody who wasn't interested in St. Peter was not a fan of. It's a really cool album title. Special <laughs> Ticket to St. Peter. That it is. So if you have a band and you need a album title, you're welcome to have that. But I would like credit in your footnotes, please. Yeah. Let's Special Ticket to St. Right Saint in. Peter. Let us know. Wow. Holy cow. The secret forced conversion to Christianity is one, one of the kindest things that she does to people. Strike one. Wow. Oh, no. So... Uh, A few years later, the Vatican, having approved this, takes control of the finances of this operation. And a lot of people who start donating, this is still a small operation, are assuming that they are providing money for, you would assume, healthy food, clean drinking water, medicine, maybe, for people who are living in kind of otherwise pretty miserable conditions. Sure. And this is like the mid-50s? So she's 42? This is 1965. So this is like in in the next decade. Got it. So she's like 55. 55. The the Vatican officially takes over the finances. Wow. Okay. But it turns out that despite the donations coming in, that money is not actually used to improve the living conditions. Uh, Because as it becomes clear over this decade, what she's most interested in is she would uh, state... is a quote unquote a beautiful death is how she put it. Um, she says it's it's for people who lived like animals to die like angels, right? <gasps> lived like animals. Yes. So, so first of all, can, and I'm just going to pause here. There's a quick there's a there's a side journey here that I'm not going to take. Right. Wow. So there are a lot of Indian scholars who are saying that essentially this European woman, sure, you know, Eastern European, but European woman mm-hmm. comes in, a white woman, and tells a very familiar colonial tale and because of her association with Europe mm-hmm. is basically held up as a progressive figure despite all of the evidence that we're going to show that she is anything but. Sure. But I don't feel prepared to do justice to the scholarship that's been done here. Right? But we're it not, is apparent in her not, language. We're not uh, qualified to do justice to any scholarship sure. for any topic. Apparently doing justice to this stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. Sure. But... So, so her exact quote is, right, a beautiful death is for people who lived like animals to die like angels. Got it. Yikes. Right? There's something beautiful in seeing the poor accept their lot to suffer it like Christ's passion. The world gains much from their suffering. What the fuck? So her goal was not to reduce the suffering. In fact, it was explicitly the opposite. It was to celebrate the suffering. Because in this religious tradition, if Jesus had to suffer and you get to suffer too, you and Jesus are right there with each other. And that's a great thing. In fact, so she told she told this story uh, without the awareness of what she was saying. But she told the story of a cancer patient that where she was telling that pain means Jesus is near to you and suffering was an opportunity to share the passion of Jesus. She said it was like uh, com- it was like getting kisses from Jesus. And then she shared his response 
apparently oblivious to the fact that he was making fun of her when he said, please tell Jesus to stop kissing me. Jesus. But she did not see that people weren't exactly looking to suffer more. They wanted someone to help them. This Mama Agnes is trying to get close to Jesus. What? Through other people's suffering? No one ever said that she was not kind to people who were in pain. But what people did say is she frequently pained their pain much, much worse. For example, people who came through and toured her actual hospices, or if, if we can call them that, her houses for the dying destitute, sure. uh, said that, one, she didn't separate out in her mind people who had curable versus incurable diseases. Like the pillar of Western hospice is like, you must be six months from dying because we have no other help to give you. People who were there with infections and pneumonia were put right alongside people who were with tuberculosis and AIDS. And then they shared needles between these people. And when they shared needles, they would wash them with cold water before reusing them again on the other patients. So actively giving people AIDS and tuberculosis that didn't have it when they walked in the door. Cancer patients, for example, were not given painkillers. The, the, the strongest painkiller that she stopped was aspirin. So rather than like actual palliative care that would remove like pain from people, it was give people an aspirin and tell them, don't worry, you're suffering is a really good thing for you. Sounds like she has Munchausen's by proxy. There, I mean, yeah, right. So you could give this a lot of names. Mm -hmm. um, but again, if you go into the poorest of the poor communities, there's not a lot of people there to stop you. Right. Right. You have, you have a lot of liberties to treat people as you wish. So was she doing this sort of just, uh, was this happening because of ignorance or was this happening because of this like deep celebration of suffering in ignoring all other sort of scientific evidence simultaneous right so what, mm. so you have like untrained young nuns mm -hmm. who are at this point right, we're still talking about like what um 70 65 65, 65 right sure. who are so one example a young nun who has zero training is feeding a paralyzed man right telling him about the joys of suffering for jesus and chokes him to death on food because she doesn't realize he can't swallow because he's paralyzed right <gasps> it is a simultaneous celebration of like how amazing this opportunity is for him oh. to suffer and having no idea that you can't feed a paralyzed person food, right? Like it is just like this, this raucous combination of like no idea what's going on and just like loving every minute of it. Oh no. Um, yeah. Removing toes. No, no, no. Without anesthesia. No, I can't hear this. <laughs> I can't. You know, I can't hear this. Don't. No more graphics. If you want to share graphic details, let me just put my earmuffs on. As Okay, so as no more graphic details, right? <laughs> what we'll say is like uh, over the next like 30, 40 years, as people begin to do exposés, as people start to investigate this, as former volunteers start to come forward, people say like mm. at best, you have a lot of people who are mm. like making it up as they go along and like doing it because with a smile because they know that they're saving souls, right? Wow. Often against people's will, wow. again, with other religions. Wow. Um, so at this point in 65... The key bit of luck that Mother Teresa has for her cause is uh, running into this BBC, uh, this uh, anti-abortion, very conservative BBC reporter, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who meets her and is taken with her. He is already like uh, a Christian at this point, but he's going to become a Catholic because of her. He loves this. He just thinks she is a glowing personality. Abortion, contraception, and divorce were all illegal most places, or were illegal a lot of places. She was radically opposed to all of those under any circumstances, right? Um, and so was he, 
And so his special, combined with this book he writes two years later, uh, takes her from this like little operation to international fame. Right? Imagine, imagine the burden of caring about how other people live their goddamn lives weighed against giving people AIDS. Um, yes, or or even Just put what? it put it in other what? terms. Imagine seeing a mother come in with AIDS and multiple children, right, who cannot care for them, and being like, you know what would really doom you? Contraceptives, yes. right? Like, sure, yeah. Family, uh, uh, total lack of family planning or disease prevention. No, none of that. Divorce, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Go back to him. And obviously we're coming from this from like a very Western American, like modern worldview, but that does not negate the damage that was done. Sure. And also in right, a more limited time. Also, the fact that she's coming from this European background and there are people in India pushing for family planning and pushing for divorce reforms so that women can leave abusive relationships. And she is fighting those forces, too. Wow. She would continue to campaign across the world and in India to try to fight these things. Right. Wow. Um, so he does this. So. Muggeridge does this special and then writes a book and just loves it. And when when push, right, because like as he's doing this, it's clear that she's not actually helping like alleviate people's suffering, right? She's celebrating and, and frequently increasing people's suffering. Wow. And and when asked like why, right, why are you like giving this woman an international platform? Because this is really where she like takes off into the stratosphere. He's like, and other people are pushing like, wow, this seems a little shady. Yeah, and pushing uh, on her like wow. on a smaller scale, right? But her response is always like. We're not social workers. We're not teachers. We're not nurses. We're not doctors. We are religious sisters. This is a quote, right? We serve Jesus to in in the poor. No other reason or other motivation. So, like, there's not false advertising at first that this is just about proselytizing. Sure. But over the next few decades, as the amount of money starts to snowball, it sure seems like what's being sold is one thing and what's actually being delivered is just more nunneries. So on the backs of this, this growing attention, additional press profiles, right? Um, this snowballs into her nomination and win of the Nobel Prize in 1979 when she's 69 years old, right? So about a decade after this like first big press push, uh, this image cultivated gets her the Nobel Prize. And um, at this point, this Nobel Prize just shoots through the roof the money that is pouring into this operation. Mm. Um, the Independent is report, reports it at at least billions of dollars, right? With a B. Oh, with a B, right, across the world. Um, oh. Frequent reports of hundreds of millions of dollars a year coming into the Missionaries of Charity. Mm. Um, at this same time, you probably want to cover your ears for this, people are reporting uh, children uh, with their mouths gagged open, giving medicine, hands flayed, uh, to beds, babies bound with closet feeding time, right? Like, just, like, no real actual medical treatment. This is, like, people... This is, like, young girls who have signed up to be nuns making it up as they go along and not trying to alleviate suffering at all. Um, open toilets that people had to share, right? Like, there's no privacy. There's basically just cuts and, like, mm. people... Hundreds of people shoved into rooms. Uh, and here's the worst part. As the billions of dollars pour in, if the goal was like, oh, we wanted to do better than this, but this was the best we could do by with our means, you would expect this to change. 
immediately. You see billions of dollars pour in and nothing improves. I run a nonprofit. If a billion dollars poured in, <laughs> let me tell you how effective we would be immediately. Yeah. Wow. Everything that was run like it was done on a budget of zero dollars that was causing suffering back 10 years before mm-hmm. is continued in the exact same way. The only thing this money does is basically increase the number of places where this occurs. So it expands from just one to like hundreds of uh, locations across the world. Um, the external analysis that's ultimately going to be done is really hard because there's all kinds of like laws in India and other places about like public disclosure sure. and they they don't follow any of them, right? They just like completely ignore all the public reporting laws. But the closest that got, that uh, anybody got publicly was a German magazine, Stern, estimated that of the millions of dollars that in the given year they did this study, um, about 7% was used for charity. Mm. So basically the inverse of how much money should be used on programs. <laughs> yes, right. So, so $97, wow. it's either just going straight to the Vatican or going... $93. 93 of every $100 is just going straight to the Vatican. Ah, or, don't like that. Yeah, or just being used to like open additional locations, like, but not actually being spent on services for the poor. So operations. I overhead, mean... Not programs. Y- yes, yes. Um, wow. When, when asked, when this all started to come out publicly after her death, somebody asked like, who is the one that like knows where this money is going? Because there there were reports of like the nuns keeping records in the, the, she so Mother Teresa disallowed computers, but also disallowed typewriters, disallowed any kind of like mm. uh, real spreadsheets. The the Why? closest Why? Uh, she was like that is like too technological. So out of maybe it's habit, it, it's not clear. She the closest they ever found was in some places people would have like black and white marble notebooks and the nuns would like keep track in pencil in the notebooks. Wow. And then after when the notebooks were full, they would erase them and start over and reuse them. Um yeah, not not a lot of good records. Do you think the IRS would let me do that? <laughs> if so, <laughs> do I have a proposition for you? <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah, um Holy cow. After she died, the new leader who came in was asked, like, how are you going to account for this? Like, how much... Or, no, actually, she was asked, how many donations are coming in? And she said, quote, unquote, countless donations. Uh, when they asked who the banker was or who actually knew, she said, God knows, he is our banker. Which... Yo, listen. So, what I'm hearing is a <laughs> very good defense. Okay. If you are currently in jail on racketeering, let me tell you some things. Mother <laughs> yes. Teresa's defense is that God is her banker, and I feel like you should just say that. Yeah, it's a. I feel like it's a great line. I don't know if it would work as well for you. So I am going to go on a shopping spree this week, <laughs> and you are not going to stop me. And then when you look at our bank account, I'm going to say... God is our banker. God is our banker. <laughs> Honestly, it's a hard line to come back it's, from. It's, that what that is a bold statement. So, it is clear at this point that with this PR push, there is incredible money coming in mm-hmm. and not a lot of money actually getting spent on services for anybody. Does it on the other side, so the nine hundred and thirty million dollars the Vatican got, mm-hmm. are they is there bank records for them or is it just like Jesus Christ up there counting the dollars look Vatican finances is a whole <laughs> other can of worms that oh, basically what no. I can tell you is uh, I do not know and I do not think that anybody has a good accounting mm-hmm. so 
as you would expect, when Mother Teresa herself gets ill a few years later in 1991, she has heart attack, gets some pneumonia, as you would expect, just like everyone she served, she is going to suffer and enjoy this opportunity to like join with Jesus' suffering. Mm Mm-hmm. Unlike what she provided everybody else. She gets uh, steroids? Gets on a private jet, flies out to the Scripps Clinic in San Diego, gets oh. a pacemaker, gets wor- gets world-class, first-class medical care that, again, she could afford to provide to potentially tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands yeah. of people Absolutely. all over the world. Could have built, with those dollars, mm-hmm. could have built hospitals. This was like peak uh, WWJD bracelet time. Oh, do you think she yes. had one on? Like, what would Jesus do getting her pacemaker <laughs> There's So, get ready. Somebody's about to throw WWJD in her face. No. Literally. No. Literally. Oh, so, you know what? This so Mother divine Th- intervention. So, Mother Teresa, right, has has her health issues, flies out, gets world class. To this day, the Scripps Clinic boasts about saving her life on their website, right? So she was not hesitating to spend the money for her own medical care, for her own alleviation of suffering at this same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, A few years later, when when she's 83, like, so that was 91. In 93, the U.S. had this big savings and loan crisis where uh, Charles Keating, a big Catholic guy, stole $250 million uh, from investors, defrauded them, got convicted on 17 counts, uh, and in this, also happened to throw like a million and a half dollars towards Mother Teresa. Uh, and Jump change. In return, she wrote a letter to the judge for his sentencing, being like, "Look," she said, "I, I, we haven't, we don't bother with business matters or politics that you're dealing with, but we just know that he's been a good guy." Jesus said, uh, "Whatever you do, the least of my brethren, you do to me." So I urge you to look into his heart. Um, to which. She says, you might find a pacemaker because he also has access to well, world-class medical care. To, to which the, <laughs> the prosecutor here responded just specifically on her asking for this uh, leniency, said, uh, I submit to you that Jesus would actually promptly and unhesitatingly return the stolen property to its rightful owners. Yeah. So if you would like to return this million and a half dollars that this criminal gave you in order to get you to write a letter asking for forgiveness for him, mm-hmm. uh, we will put you directly in touch with the people it was stolen from. Right. Didn't he, like, overturn tables in a temple with a whip and there's coins flying? Yeah, the money changers. Jesus was not a fan. Sure. Yeah. But Mother Teresa didn't respond to that second letter asking her to do what Jesus would do. Mm. Turns out. Probably couldn't hear it over the ticking of her pacemaker. Uh, potentially not. No. Yikes. Yeah, so... Um, she also didn't hesitate to do the same for uh, abusers, uh, sexual abusers in the church. The all so she frequently went to bat uh, for F- Father Peter Jameson. Um, since the sixties, had been abusing people. Um, asked for her support. Um, she wrote a letter. Understand this is a ga- understand this is a grave scandal, but you know we really should like judge in his heart so he can resume this vital ministry. They. Took her advice, reinstated him, no. and because of that direct recommendation, he went on to molest at least or abuse and molest at least eight additional boys before he was ultimately convicted and removed. Um, so she did manage to to put him back in in his spot. Uh, it, it, people around her said that she seemed to have a blind spot where it was much worse for her to a much greater sin in her mind to talk about the sexual abuse than to actually commit it. No. That is heartbreaking. Two years later, 1997, she dies. Uh, I remember this. What had been uh, just a week after Princess Diana. I was going to say, I remember Princess Diana, 
her funeral and then Mother Teresa mm-hmm. laid in wake for like a week on like for the public. Yeah. In that glass box. I remember it. For yeah. Sure. Um, what had started off as just her and a few people in a school in Calcutta ended up being 4,000 members of her ministry plus 30,000 employees and like hundreds of thousands of volunteers. Um, postscript here. Sure. Um, she's now a saint. I, I recall so this. So after she died, sure. there's usually like a, a mandatory waiting period right. to, they, make, to start this process. They like got rid of it, right? They, they, they right waved away. that, kicked it yeah. off. I mean, if you, if $930 million to the Vatican doesn't get you sainthood, what will? I mean, it will. Turns out, <laughs> it turns out it will. Um, so she, so, but here's the thing. To be a saint, you need a miracle to your name, right? Sure. Right. And miracles showing up on toast doesn't count yes showing up on toast doesn't count uh miracles happen left and right in the old testament mm-hmm. jesus did some there have been a, a few more after that but they seem to be slowing down uh with the proliferation of newspapers and other stuff those typewriters those typewriters get in the way of recording saints true or, uh, miracles so you need a miracle uh but luckily a few years later 2002 the Vatican recognized the miracle of a healing of a tumor in the ob- uh, in the abdomen of a woman, Monica Besra, an Indian woman. She said she had a locket that had Agnes's picture in it, and all of a sudden a beam of light emanated from it, and her cancerous tumor was cured. Mm. Um, Congratulations, you discovered reflections well, and chemotherapy. Only complication to this story is, in fact, her nine to 12 months of treatment for yes. this tumor <laughs> that had been going on right. where her husband said um, she'd been undergoing treatment for nine to 12 months and that <laughs> was actually what was curing the tumor. Uh, the doctor said uh, it was not a miracle. She took the medicine for nine months, which was the expected amount of time, and then it was cured. His, mm. the, the direct quote from her husband is, my wife was cured by the doctors and not by any miracle. This miracle is a hoax. So they have they have her sonograms, her prescriptions, her physician's notes. All of these things are like, here is a proof Unfortunately, one of the sisters of the Missionaries of Charity broke in and confiscated all of their medical documents that showed this was just a regular course of treatment. And the Vatican was like, well, uh, looks like we'll take it. Sure. No comment. Got us a records keeper. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Got us a banker, got us a records keeper. It worked out great. Wow. Um, Yeah. So um, that is to this day, the official miracle that qualified her for going into the sainthood process. And uh, currently, according to the Catholic Church, that is the miracle on which rests the proof that mm. Agnes lived a heroically virtuous life. I feel like the miracle is that you can do all this shit for eight decades, no one catches you, and then they still call you a saint. Yes. That in and of itself is a miracle. Let's just say... So, what a treat. So she was not officially named a saint until 2016. In 2013, mm-hmm. before this thing is finalized, right? A lot of a lot of terrible things happened in 2016. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that right now. Yes, <laughs> but in this post-postscript, when you're like, how did she get away with this? There is a on-the-record meta-analysis of all of the media references, literature, actual investigations that have been done into the the charity ministries. And um, this is a group out of the University of Montreal. So these academics like went through, looked through all the criticism, all of the defenses, and they basically said, it is clear that uh, her caring for the sick was glorifying their suffering instead of relieving it. She had questionable political contacts, her suspicious management of enormous sums of money she received, and her overlaid do- dogmatic re- views in particular on contraception and divorce made her a much less clean cut picture 
than the media portrayals would have you believe. And especially, they said in this meta-analysis, questioning the Vatican's motivations for ignoring this criticism, they found out that her hallowed image, which does not really stand up to any analysis of the facts, was clearly constructed. And her beatification, meaning like making her a saint, uh, was orchestrated by a very effective media relations campaign engineered by the same BBC journalist Malcolm Muggeridge that had invested in her original documentaries that gave her the Nobel Prize. Wow. So wow. what what I think we can say, if you personally are not into mm-hmm. the magnification and increase of suffering of people and secret conversion not. of them on their deathbeds. Oh, hard pass. Very firmly. I want this on record. Very <laughs> against that. Then it, More against that than most. <laughs> then it does seem like Mother Teresa Agnes, Mama Agnes, Mama Agnes. Sh- should not be your hero. She is not mine. She's not mine, but that was an excellent telling of her life. I learned just so, so much. Top to bottom, knew basically none of that. Having grown up uh, not Catholic, when I was 10, I asked my minister why there were no dinosaurs in the Bible. She couldn't explain that. From that point, I was later days on Jesus. (laughs) It seems like (laughs) there's just a, a much bigger story to be told. Um, if people want to learn more about how much we know about Mama Agnes, Mother Teresa, where can they find us? So, you can. So, one, there's all kinds of good source material, specifically on Agnes here. You should look up uh, Hell's Angel, which is a great documentary by Christopher Hitchens. You should also mm. look up the books they've written, BBC specials. Mm-hmm. But if you want to find us, yeah, I was go to... Say, what's our website? <laughs> go to our website, uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Your Heroes Pod or HTTPS colon double forward slash www.meetyourheroespodcast.com. Mm-hmm. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, and we'd love it if you would uh, leave us a comment, like, share our podcast, uh, get in touch. We would love to know who you would like for us to feature on Meet Your Heroes. You can find that form on our website or just get in touch by yelling at us on the internet. Yes. And if, any point between now and the next episode, you have the opportunity, please remember, no matter what, don't be a hero. Just don't do it. Talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Encore episode of Mother Teresa. Now we present to you everyone's favorite rhyming doctor and lesser known racist, Dr. Seuss. Hey, and welcome to the Meet Your Heroes podcast. My name is Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the podcast where we throw the conventional wisdom out the window and get to know the real people, generally terrible people, that our heroes really are. 30, 60 minutes, depending on how shitty the person was. Always that. 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how uh, much of my notes you let me read versus how much I have to spitball. I would hope someday, when hard-pressed, people would not be able to spend 30 minutes recounting after the AM. Oh, they will for sure at least (laughs) spend 30 minutes talking about what a dickhead I am. There's no doubt about it. Listen, that's why we can do this podcast. As shitty as we may be in our lives at points, we we are shitty on a personal scale as opposed to a systemic scale. Yeah, we're shitty in the like... 
yeah, we'll help you build that guillotine sort of way, <laughs> but not the uh, we're going to leverage our privilege to oppress other people sort of way. Yeah. The best we can. The best we can. The best we can. All right. So speaking of shitty people. Speaking of shitty people. I've got one for you today. Okay. So this is a person that a lot of people consider like a legitimate hero, like adored, loved, not the sort of like, oh, well, we all know Churchill's kind of a dick or, you know, Napoleon. Everybody knows he's bad. This is maybe going to fuck up some people's childhood nostalgia. Oh, my God. All right. Okay. Who, Audrey, who is our hero today? Today, we are talking about Dr. Seuss. Oh, man. Yikes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, born Theodore Seuss Giesel. Yes. Um, we know him as Dr. Seuss. Yeah, let's just say, as clearly in the hero column, because probably between 99 and 100% of people in America, at least listening to this, have like fond childhood memories mm. of reading these books mm -hmm. that he's written. We've read them to our own daughter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. We've seen Alec Baldwin in a Dr. Seuss movie. That's how, like, ubiquitous this person is, right? Yes. Classics include... One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Cat in the Hat, Horton Hears a Who, The Grinch. Beloved Christmas Tale. Beloved. Um, but before we go any further, I, I want to give credit to someone who basically laid the groundwork to make this possible, this specific podcast. So obviously there's Wikipedia, but um, I got a lot of this information from this person uh, named Jamie Lauren. I believe it's Kyle's. Could be Kiel's. Um, so without further ado, let's talk about Dr. Seuss. Uh, he was born in 1904, mm -hmm. just laying some groundwork. Born in Massachusetts, turn of the century, normal childhood. Okay. Um, his dad managed a brewery and um, then did something for the park service during Prohibition. Totally normal childhood, had a sister, two parents, cush gig, early 1920s, goes to Dartmouth. Uh, at Dartmouth, he joined the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity. He's pretty popular. He Frat boy. Frat boy, yes. Um, popped collar Dr. Seuss ends up <laughs> writing for and becoming the editor of a humor publication called the Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern. Okay, like the onion of its day then? The onion of the day, uh, mad magazine type style, cartoons, humor, I imagine just for men, like Dartmouth is just boys in the 1920s, right? Maybe a few women, but probably just the worst humor you could imagine. 1920s Dr. Seuss at an Ivy League college. Yes. <laughs> Gross. Um, but uh, normal childhood, his college years are not without scandal. He gets caught drinking gin in 1924. Four-ish. You're hold hold on hold on. You're saying mm -hmm. a frat boy. Yes. Was drinking gin to be specific. Wow. Four years into prohibition. So the dean is like, "I'll have mercy on you. 
you're not going to be kicked out, but you can no longer do any extracurricular activities. And that includes... Oh, wait. This is like, a, this is like not a comment. This is a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> he can no longer be the editor, but Dr. Seuss, the ever-persistent person he is, says, no, no, no. Um, at this time, he's still Theodore Giesel. He says, what if I just, like, submit all of my stories with the pen name Dr. Seuss? Mm. Which is just like a shocking thing to me that this school that has all of his records would not know that he's using his middle name as his pen name. Wait, this is his middle name? Yeah, Theodore Seuss Giesel. Oh, this is that's not like just the stage name here we're talking. This no, is no, like no. he was just like, mm, okay, so I can't be Teddy Giesel anymore. I guess I'll be hmm Doctor Seuss. Well, okay, yeah, uh, seems like they are kind of asleep at the wheel here. Sleep at the wheel. Or they turn a blind eye because he's... whatever. Uh, so he's writing all these stories. He graduates Dartmouth in 1925, and he's like, you know what I'm going to do with my talents? I am going to go to London and study at Oxford to become an English teacher. Get a PhD in English literature, come back, teach some high schoolers. I mean, if you're a prep boy in... 20s Ivy League. I mean, it sounds like the preppiest of prep routes you could take. So I, I buy that. For sure. So he goes to Oxford. He meets this woman. Her name is Helen Palmer. And she, they, their love interests, they spark up a romance. And she notices that he's like constantly doodling in these notebooks. And so as she puts it, she quote unquote, goes about setting to divert him. Wait, divert him? Yes. She was like, you know what? This man that I'm about to pony up to, <laughs> he is going to put a ring on it. Instead of being a PhD English teacher, it would be super neat if he could be a cartoonist. Wait, <laughs> what? This is probably the first uh, woman in history to be like, could you give up your tenure track job for mm -hmm. your uh, doodling, please? Yeah, it's actually a pretty good bet. She gets him to drop out of Oxford. He goes back to Massachusetts. There, he starts submitting all of his writings and doodles to magazines all around the country. And within a few months, so he goes back in February. By July, he has been paid $25 by the Saturday Evening Post to for this one specific cartoon. Dr. Seuss is like... Fuck yes. $25. Anytime we say $25 and it's like earlier than 1950, I just imagine, oh, that's about a million dollars. <laughs> about a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't do that conversion, but a million dollars sounds right that's for right. the one cartoon in there. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's be $10,000. I don't know. Let's, it's, oh, it, I bet it's, I would thousand, say 500 bucks. 500 bucks. Okay. 500 bucks. He's just like, mm -hmm. it's, it's money. Yes. And he's like, this $500, I am so talented. I'm going to leave Massachusetts and go to New York City because I've got this $25 burning a hole in my pocket. I've got Helen back in London. She believes in me. Let's do this thing. He's got $25 in his pocket and a dream in his heart. He's going to New York <laughs> City. dream in his heart. So uh, it's actually a pretty legit dream. He moves to New York City and within a few months is a staff writer and illustrator for this magazine. It's called Judge Magazine. And it's like a humorous magazine. I've never heard of it. Didn't even look it up. Don't know. Not around today. Not around today. Within a month, he has this big, huge hit of a cartoon. 
So they're like, he's like cranking out cartoons. He's writing. He's just dropping like singles right from the jump. He is. He Yes, he is. He's like selling CDs out of the trunk of his car. He's like, hey, you guys listen to this, this mixtape. Um, and it goes really well for him. And within a few months, he like randomly puts this very specific product in one of his cartoons, just like in passing. And this product um, was called Flit. And it was a pesticide that it was like one of the very first pesticides that was for homeowners to use on their lawn. Right. So we're about to start like monocropping lawns all across sure, the country. Yes. Um, so the writer that I mentioned earlier notes that his catchphrase for this product that somehow gets him very famous, like it's a long story, but puts it in this original ad. Or this original cartoon, this ad executive's wife sees this cartoon at her hairdresser, calls her husband, is like, you need to sign this man. He's going to make you so wealthy. He leaves Judge and goes to be just like advertisement campaign manager for Flit. Wait, this is a real... He just like drew some random product in there and mm-hmm. like the wife is like, mm-hmm. hire this boy. I feel like that's like a, a movie scene. Like, you know, get this boy off the streets and bring him... Wow. Yeah. It worked through. It you know, it was a much smaller world back then. Definitely so was. much yes. smaller. Um, but the the writer that I mentioned earlier, Jamie, says his catchphrase, quick, Henry, the flit, quote, help to normalize the use of toxic household poisons in America. Which is true. Ooh. It also makes him mad bank. He gets so wealthy writing ad, ad campaigns for this pesticide that is... That he then later, this company is later then bought by like Exxon Mobil. So then he's writing like pesticides and oil campaigns. Oh, right? well then. <laughs> just the best of both worlds on that one. Right? I just. How, can you simultaneously manage to poison children and the atmosphere? It's the least shitty of the things he's about to do. Um, so he gets famous really quickly. Uh, they get very wealthy, so much so that. Uh, he can choose to work when he wants, and he and his wife travel the world, right? How old is he? Like, in his 30s? Yeah. At this point, he's, like, in his 30s. Man, just imagine. Get, you put a random pesticide in a humor cartoon and then get rich selling poison to households and ExxonMobil to unsuspecting post-industrial countries and just travel the world at their... Ugh. Retire I believe that's early. what they call the first mover advantage. Yeah, that's... Oh. He was just the first one willing to hmm. advertise toxic household goods, I Man, suppose. What, what a wild time. Yep. So they're traveling. They move up in social circles. He's becoming more and more well-known. And he decides he's going to go back to his love and start writing books. Oh, wait. His love not... Okay. Mm-hmm. Was he big into books before? Because he was he like... He's a writer, like a humorist. He's doing humor cartoon. I guess it's true. He jumped from like his substantive college humor mm-hmm. paper days mm-hmm. to the sellout world of advertising made his dollars and now going back to the true art of funny pictures and newspapers yes well in books unironically his first book that gets published is a book of jokes slash funny childhood sayings and this book was called boners oh <laughs> it did not have the sexual connotation that that word has now wait what sexual connotation does that have now it did not have the sexual <laughs> connotation that that word has now um 
But I find it hysterical yes. because not only was Boners a best-selling book, the sequel, More Boners, and the follow-up, Still More Boners, and then the fourth book, <laughs> Prize fourth... Boners. Wait. <laughs> Prize Boners? Prize Boners. They... Wow. Gangbusters. Gang... I feel like I just need... Boners by Dr. Seuss on my shelf. So it's actually a book you can buy. It's called The Pocket Book of Boners by Dr. Oh, Seuss. <laughs> um, so they top the list of nonfiction books. He publishes that, publishes four more. He's gaining some popularity. This is a wild time, man. Okay. As a children's author. And he was like... You know what I Wait, mean. Boners is a book for kids? Yeah, so Boners... The pocketbook of Boners for your children. Back then <laughs> meant like goofy things you could say that are kind of like witty and strange and like, ha ha. It's not what it means now. But he writes this book. He writes four more. And he thinks to himself, now's the time to do what I really love. And that's right, Erotica. <laughs> what? So the boners was not the erotica. What? <laughs> right? So skipping boners is 1939 at this point. So he's 35. And he writes this book, The Seven Lady Godivas, colon, The True Facts Concerning History's Barest Family. The plot of this book is weird. It's hard to explain. But basically these like... Seven daughters of Godiva see their dad killed because he's riding a horse. They're all naked. It's supposed to be very sexual. The problem is Dr. Seuss can only draw one fucking character. So it's just a <laughs> bunch of like naked Loraxes. <laughs> <laughs> and people, it's like the middle of the Great Depression. It, it, and they're like pictures. Mm -hmm. It's mostly pictures. Oh, wait. Okay. Yep. Yep. And people are like, Oh, so Dr. Seuss, it, this man who writes children's jokes, is trying to sell me a $2 book of naked cartoon ladies that are not sexual at all. Okay, so so <laughs> I think I understand here. So once I'm past the weirdness of the fact that he wrote Boners for Kids and didn't want it to be the sexy book, mm -hmm. but then wrote the naked Lorax for adults <laughs> and wanted it to be the sexy book. If you get past that, it sounds like he was just before his time because, frankly... If he wrote that and put it on the internet today, you mm. would find your people, mm. right? You don't even know. Yes. yes. So yeah. so it is just that he was trying to make this mass market. And unfortunately, like, that's only going to be a market for people who don't have to go to a bookstore and ask for it in person. You are correct. It was a major, major flop. And at this point, after his soft porn for adults... His Lorax. His Lorax. I mean, it's not the Lorax, technically. <laughs> sure. They're just like, the imagine Dr. Seuss drawing naked women. Oh, yeah. The, like the, who, mm -hmm. the, the the furry like head with like the misshapen arms. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure where you're going with the furry blank, blank, blank. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he did his very best and it was terrible. Yes. And so then he says that he would, quote unquote, rather write for children who were more appreciative and he was no longer interested in writing for adults. Fuck you guys. I'm writing erotica for kids again. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so then eventually he just gets like so mad that nobody wants to read his porn that he goes back to writing kids books. He's, he's actually offended by this. Oh, yes. He's he like, thought this... this was his calling. Like oh, he really man. thought 
Oh, man. He has all this money. He wrote these books. He, you know, was about to get a PhD from Oxford. He is this, like, writer when you luck with in, substance. Yeah, when you luck into success that early in life, you, mm-hmm. you start to... He, he drew the wrong conclusion. His, mm-hmm. his conclusion was that he could do no wrong. Right. But the real conclusion was people like jokes and not Lorax porn. <laughs> <laughs> so we're really sorry, really sorry if you like Lorax porn and we're offending you right now. Yeah, not, this might not be the podcast for you. <laughs> ju- actually, not judging you. Just, <laughs> not uh, at all. Not I think, at all. You, I think to in the me- 1930s, it's hard. It's hard to sell Lorax porn in the like 1930s. Yes, I just want to talk to our Lorax porn listeners for a second here. I just want you to know, I feel like you and us, we're on the same page that you know this is not something you can talk to your friends about. It's not. You know it's not something you bring up at work in casual conversation. So I hope you can, we're just trying to say at the time he had not found your people Mm-mm. and your people are hard to find. Like it's not, yeah. you're not out in the, in the open. Right. Yeah, there was not yet a Reddit for this. It's true. Oh, and there's a Reddit. I'm sure. Oh, I don't want to look, but I'm sure there's a Reddit for this. Oh, I'm going to look. And if there's a Reddit, <laughs> if there's a Lorex porn on Reddit, I'm going to put the link in our bio. No, don't. Don't. So anyway, that's not the worst thing that's going to happen because right after he publishes this flop of a porn, um, World War II breaks out. So he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop writing. I, instead, I'm going to join the army and start making propaganda films. I mean, uh, it's an army thing. It's it's what they did. It Bugs is. Bunny. Army, army propaganda. In partnership with the same folks who made Bugs Bunny. Really? Yes. Okay. He becomes super pro-war. Just like so pro-war, isolationist, non-interventionist. He loses his mind, cannot stand them, decides... The very best use of his talents is to go and lead this, like, animation division of the army. Um, He created an entire series that was, and this is a quote, developed with the express purpose of indoctrinating young, unworldly, and often illiterate new recruits before shipping them overseas. Oh, okay. So indoctrinate the boys before they're shipped off. He did that, and he also then started making incredibly racist animations. Oh. Right? So during this period, he creates a ton of explicitly and deliberately racist cartoons. These cartoons often feature the N-word, and they depict things like Japanese Americans being killed by TNT. We were talking World War II here. Mm-hmm. And so... Because we're fighting Japan, it's just kill the Japanese. Yeah. Uh, it was kill the Japanese and it was create propaganda to get people to buy war bombs to, quote, slap a Jap smile off his face. Uh, buy war bonds? To- bonds. Got it. Yeah. And um, he at the time said, if we want to win... We've got to kill the Japs. We can get palsy walsy afterward with those that are left. Palsy uh, walsy. Definitely a Dr. Seuss uh, saying there because it means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um, the most racist nonsense I've heard. Sure. I yeah. mean, not racist nonsense. Like, 
nonsensical racism. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird to hear like the the hint of whimsy that Dr. Seuss usually brings to a story uh, put in the service of racism. It's a little disconcerting. Feels bad. It does. It feels bad. We so, can get all wibbly wobbly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just lighten some TNT, sending a Hicks to fight across seas. I mean, uh, you know, as as terrifying and horrible as it is, it makes some sense that if you're trying to get, you know, 17-year-olds who have no idea what the world is like to go fight, Dr. Seuss books seem to make sense. I know. Ooh. Isn't that terrible? Ooh. You're like, oh, well, you know, Dick and Jane books are boring and difficult to read. They don't really tell a story. They're not getting us the sort of like blowing up other countries effect that we want. How do we channel your ignorant racism into like a fun killing people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Seuss to the rescue. Right. So the war ends. And this is the moment in time where his defenders try, you know, some redemption techniques, right? They're like, okay, so he was pretty shitty during the war. We when know you, this. By the way, whenever you say his defenders from now on, I'm just going to picture some guys on this Reddit just like being like yeah. <laughs> loving their Lorax porn and just like being like, you don't say a bad thing about him. <laughs> right, right. Um, so picture that. Okay, got it. Done. But Unfortunately, it's more like, hey. Done. Have y'all heard about Horton Hears a Who? Because that's an allegory about the American um, sort of like post-war takeover of Japan and what it means to then like come in and steward this protection and take care of them. I remember Horton Hears a Who and the story. Um, it, I would not have been able to put together that it was some sort of allegory for post-war Japan. But hey, there you go. So after all of this pro-internment camp, like absolute hatred of Japanese people, Japanese Americans, Dr. Seuss goes to Japan and he starts collecting drawings from children there about what the war was like for them. And Dr. Seuss is like, we goofed. <laughs> so... <laughs> This sucks, and I'm sorry. I'm going to write a book about it. He writes Horton Hears a Who. It's very popular. The allegory is lost on anybody who doesn't fully understand the sort of like complex geopolitical structure of the time. It seems like this innocent children's book still does not absolve him of the fact that he literally recruited people to kill all across Japan. So at this point, it's post-war, a few years down the road, he's still writing books. He goes back to it, not the porn, the kid stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, by the 60s, his wife, Helen, is terminally ill with cancer. Mm -hmm. She is partially paralyzed. Dr. Seuss is like, now's a great time to take a lover, someone who's 20 years younger than my wife. Hmm. Mm. Mm. So he's been married to Helen since the 20s. It's 40 years later. They're in their 60s. Dr. Seuss's mistress, named Audrey, 20 years younger than him. This destroys Helen, right? She's like, on my 
deathbed I mean, you're the, going to do this. It sounds like the cancer was doing a pretty good job destroying her too, but this is just... This is too much. Because, listen, this is the time where you would want your partner of 40 years to say, you are suffering. This is the worst moment of your life. We are wealthy beyond our means. Like, there, I don't have to work. I never have to leave your side. Let me take care of you. Instead, he's like, hey, you know our, like, joint acquaintance, Audrey? Yeah, I've been fucking her for a while. Helen does not take this well. I imagine she doesn't. She dies by suicide. Ooh. She leaves a suicide note. And in it, she writes that Dr. Seuss could say that she was overworked and overwrought so that his reputation with his friends and fam- uh, friends and fans would not be harmed. Because in reality, I killed myself because you're an asshole. Yes. And a family friend called Helen's suicide, quote, his last, her last and greatest gift to him. Ugh. Ugh. Feels not good. Yeah. That feels terrible. God, what a... So... Shitty person. Helen dies by suicide. Audrey is like, now's my chance. Divorces her husband. Oh, she's married too. Mm-hmm. And Audrey and Dr. Seuss get married within a year. Audrey, who's still young, has two young children, moves in, and Dr. Seuss was like, your kid's got to go. He sends him to boarding school. He gigs the kids out the house. Yeah, turns out he fucking hated kids. <laughs> oh, well, of course he did. He said, you have them, oh, I'll entertain them. But he legitimately, like, hated being around children. He said they made him uncomfortable and in mass, like a bunch of them all together, he says they're terrible. Hates him. Cannot fucking stand kids. And I mean, can I just say, a giant group of kids, terrible. Yes, I agree oh, with him. Even teachers, yeah. This yeah. is it's hard. Yes. But also, um, he loves them as customers. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sell them the books. Of course he hates kids. Yes. So Dr. Seuss and Audrey live happily for another 23 years. Um, He writes a ton of books, about 50 of them, which is roughly about the same number of uh, war propaganda movies he made as well. Oh, wow. That's quite a few movies. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) that he made in a much shorter period of time than his books. Um, He dies in 1991 of oral cancer. And um, most of his legacy actually comes after his death. So, you know, we were young children when he died. Do you remember that? No, no, not at all. I vaguely remember it. Um, yeah, it's so strange. I have this very specific recollection of being in the school library, like the on the year anniversary of his death, and the librarians doing like this whole Dr. Seuss thing, which, um, so now we can talk about his legacy, if you would like. Yeah, please. Beyond the like turmoil he caused in his real life or his alive life um he's had this long complex legacy in the almost 30 years since his death yikes okay so he died in the 90s 91 okay right um after his death read across america was founded around Mm -hmm. his birthday so that's been going on for about 20 years it's this like week where librarians and teachers and schools celebrate literacy all across the country um, for a long time, it was sort of ushered in by the Cat in the Hat 
every year the cat in the hat comes to your school and it's like, read across America. Here's Dr. Seuss books, right? Mm -hmm. A few years ago, though, a study was published about Dr. Seuss's treatment of people of color in his works, implicitly and explicitly. And the results of that study have come to the public's attention. Pretty racist. Yeah, it turns out. Turns out. So I'm going to talk in just a second a little bit more in, in detail, but some examples of this racism just at a high level so that we all understand. Things like his explicit treatment of Chinese people with like exaggerated features and the use of racist terms that had to be posthumously like edited out of his book oh, so that they could be sold. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say them, but they were then replaced with the term Chinese man ah. or things like that. So we know about those like pretty explicit symbols, but I'm going to read a little bit from the basically the press release of this study. Um, and it starts. So in the 50 Dr. Seuss children's books. There are 45 characters of color representing just 2% of the total number of human characters. Of those 45 characters, 43 are identified as having characteristics aligning with the definition of Orientalism. 14 people are identified by stereotypical East Asian characteristics, and only two of the 45 characters are identified in the text as, quote, African, and both align with the theme of anti-Blackness. It continues... White supremacy is seen through the centering of whiteness and white characters, who comprise 98% of all characters, and notably every character of color is male. Males of color are only presented in subservient or dehumanized roles. This also remains true in the relation to white characters. Most startling is the complete invisibility and absence of women and girls of color across Seuss's entire children's book collection. So it sounds like if you're going to have a program like Read Across America, <laughs> where your whole goal is to say, hey, children of America, mm -hmm. let's make reading fun and exciting. Potentially, the way you want to do that shouldn't be a person whose explicit goal at one point, and then it seems like implicit goal at another point was to like dress up the trappings of like making white characters look good and normal and making everybody who's not white look terrible and stereotypical and mm -hmm. then like making that the backbone of your reading program yes <laughs> especially considering for a large um for for many children who benefit from the read across america program who benefit the most from it are children of color in schools where there is a diverse student population, where like Read Across America is no longer just like, let's celebrate a book. It's like suddenly every kid gets 10 books this week. There, there's yeah. like sponsorship programs, right? Um, and so you, you really can't have that messaging, one, for white kids to reinforce white supremacy, but two, for children of color to internalize that have themselves. this internalized message. Like this is the author authoritative text on like representation in your childhood. Right. Um, Especially when the world is so big and there are so many good books out there. Don't pick those. So many good books. Um, silver lining. 
We're figuring it out. People are having this expanded conversation. I just think it's important that our listeners know that Dr. Seuss was racist, a horn dog, <laughs> and a complex human being, and not just fucking like, oh, the places you'll go. I mean, I'm just going to say it. If it were up to me, mm-hmm. I would not make the person who is simultaneously responsible for racist war propaganda to brainwash like uneducated 17-year-olds and Lorax porn, my hero. There there are better, more well-rounded, less creepy and terrible people to be your hero. That is for sure. Anyway, so that's Dr. Seuss. Well, thank Never you. meet your hero. Oh. Fuck your childhood, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Dunzo. Sorry about your memories. Tell the good people where they can find us. Um, well, if they're listening to this, there's a good chance they found us on social media. Yeah, you know where to find it. Forget this. We're, we're not, you know, you know where to find this podcast Instagram, already. Facebook now. We're, And yes. Twitter at Your Heroes Pod. YourHeroesPodcast.com. Um, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Overcast. Any place you get your podcasts, basically you can find us. You already uh, have found us. Yeah. They, they have found us. At this point, if you haven't rated and reviewed us. The rating, that's the rating. It's the thing. Mm-hmm. I appreciate Go. You know, I want to say to the... the those of you out there that did it, thank you. That's it was solid. It's very cool of you. Yeah, you're welcome. Way to go. <laughs> Wait, you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're, you're responsible for no more than 25% of the reviews. <laughs> yes, 25% <laughs> of the reviews. But really, if you like this podcast, it would be really excellent if you would rate, review, and share so that others can find it, so that we can destroy their childhoods also. Yeah. Because it's not enough to destroy yours. You, you, the people you know and love deserve to have their childhoods ruined by our mediocre book reports every single week. Yes, and frankly, I'm going to talk again to my favorite subset of our listeners. <laughs> if you could just pass this around the Lorax Porn Reddit, that would be fantastic. I think these people would really be into this episode in particular. Mm-hmm. Others, maybe. Hopefully there's some overlap. But if not, get them this one. They'll like it. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening. And uh, till next time. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.